Steve, thank you. Good afternoon. Let me tell you uh, right off the bat, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I always enjoy talking about liberty ships, and particularly John W. Brown. Uh, time is relatively short. I'll get, uh, get started without further ado. This is the Liberty Ship John W. Brown. I'm going to talk about the uh, emergency shipbuilding program in World War II that was run by the Maritime Commission, which would build more than 5,500 commercial ships for use during the wartime. The most significant proportion of those ships were Liberty ships. And in this context, the word liberty refers to a specific design of ship, like Arleigh Burke when you talk about the DDG-51s. So this is a Liberty ship. This one is still afloat and operating up in uh, Baltimore. The ship is uh, 441 feet long, a beam of uh, 57 feet. It uh, carried about 10,000 tons of cargo, which was about par for the course beginning of the war. Uh, travel at a speed of, of 10 knots, which by today's standards is, is somewhat slow, but convoy speed in the Atlantic at the beginning of the war was only 8 knots, so a 10-knot ship did uh, just fine. It had a uh, crew of 44 civilian merchant mariners operating the ship. And then you can see that there's defensive armament on the uh, ship. When they put the armament on, they put a Navy contingent on called the Naval Armed Guard. It was generally uh, headed up by a junior officer, an ensign or a JG. And on the case of John W. Brown, which had a total of 12 guns eventually, uh, generally 30 to 40 enlisted Couple of couple of gunners, mates, and a number of uh, of seamen first class. So we're going to talk about the uh, emergency shipbuilding program that built Liberty ships. Battle of the Atlantic. I don't have to talk very much about that. I am sure you're all familiar with it. The longest battle of World War II began on the third of September, 1939, with the sinking of the British liner Athena off the uh, coast of Ireland. And the last ship sunk by a German submarine was the American flag ship. It was a collier that was uh, sunk off the uh, coast of Rhode Island on the 5th of May. Um, the German goal with their submarine command was to sink many more ships than the Allies could manufacture, could replace and particularly to, to starve England into submission and also prevent war materials from being uh, transported to, to Murmansk. So it was the Battle of the Atlantic, the submarine campaign, which brought about the need for a significant shipbuilding program. This is uh, U.S. flag SS Tiger, uh, not a very dramatic photograph of a ship being sunk, but I use this photograph because this ship was sunk as it approached the pilot station to pick up a pilot at the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay. That's how close the German submarines were operating to our coast. The first six months of 1942, German <coughs> submarines sank almost 200 American flagships off the East Coast, Gulf Coast, and in the Caribbean. They had a real heyday over here. Backing up a bit, <coughs> the Brits, who have been in this war since 1939, could not produce merchant ships quickly enough to replace what they were losing to German submarines. 
1940, they sent a shipbuilding delegation to the United States headed by one Cyril Thompson. His task was to find a way to build 60 merchant ships, like these two ocean-class ships shown in the view graph, in the United States. He quickly found out that the United States was already gearing up for likely entry into the war. All our shipbuilding facilities were tied up, most of them building naval tonnage. And so he said, uh, he was told, facilities are simply not available, you'll have to go elsewhere. He persevered, he got together with uh, the industrialist, Henry J. Kaiser, and a couple of people who ran shipyards. And he was told that if Britain built the shipyards in this country, they could build the ships in this country. And that's what they did. They built a shipyard in South Portland, Maine. They built one on the West Coast. And each of those yards built 20 of these ocean-class ships. At the same time, or shortly thereafter, Maritime Commission recognizes that, that we're going to be in this war so shortly, and we're going to need a lot of merchant tonnage to haul the materials of war wherever they're needed. And so they embarked on what they would eventually be called an emergency shipbuilding program uh, to do this. So the initial question they were faced with is, do we build an existing class of ship that we've already started, or do we build something that is uh, more quickly assembled? The Merchant Marine Act of 1936 had started to rebuild the American Merchant Marine. They'd come up with designs for several classes of cargo ships that were essentially state-of-the-art. They had sea speeds of 15 to 17 knots. They were powered by steam turbines. It took a while to build these ships. Uh, they weren't uh, quickly produced. The other alternative, which I'll call the wartime expedient, was to take this design of a British Depression-era tramp steamer, make some changes to Americanize it and to make it more quickly built, and go ahead and build this wartime expedient. Um, after much discussion, they opted for the, uh, for the latter course of action. So they got the plans for these British tramp steamers from the Brits. They gave them to Gibbs and Cox, who was at the time our foremost naval architect, and they made some changes to these ships so that they would be more habitable for American crews. Uh, the British ships were coal-fired because the Brits hung on to coal-fired ships for a long time. We had already converted to oil, so they did away with the coal-fired Scotch boilers and put in uh, oil fires, oil furnaces, and uh, they made some other changes which made these ships so they could be more quickly built almost on an assembly line process. Before that, ships had been pretty much built one, as a time, one at a time. The other change they made was that the Brits generally gave a shipyard very general plans and let the individual shipyards use them for discretions on how they implemented those, those general plans. Maritime Commission's direction to Gibbs and Cox was, you make detailed plans. We want to know everything. And those detailed plans were given to the 18 shipyards that would eventually build Liberty ships. And so they were all essentially cookie cutters. They were very the parts were very much interchangeable. A big boon for John W. Brown when we started restoring it because we could go to the reserve fleet and if there was a Liberty ship down there we could take any part and it would fit in John W. Brown. The, the whole patterns of pipe size, everything was the, uh, 
was the same. It also made a lot of difference in the assembly of these ships because Steve mentioned this just this idea of just-in-time uh, delivery. And so you had a number of contractors building pumps or building different things that would go on the ship. And if one of them couldn't deliver in time, you could get the same piece of machinery from another vendor or one of its competitors, and it was going to fit and it was going to work. This is what they ended up with. It's a uh, <clears throat> basic five-hatch dry cargo ship with uh, cargo, uh, cargo booms. You can see on the uh, drawing that there is armament, so the ship was configured to have uh, defensive armament, and most of our merchant ships during World War II did have uh, defensive armament. Um, those of you not familiar with merchant ships, I'm going to point out this term, double bottom tanks. This is the area between the outer bottom and the inner bottom. I'm going to refer to that on a later view graph, but just wanted you to be uh, aware of what it was and, and where it uh, fit on the ship. Again, 441 feet long, carried about 10,000 tons of cargo, crew of uh, 44 merchant mariners. So, Maritime Commission had come up with the ship design. This was the engine that was going to be used. This is a triple expansion reciprocating steam engine. Um, it was used in the, I don't mean to keep standing in front of you, you, you need to yell at me when I do that. Um, used in the, uh, the British design. The engine was obsolete well before World War II. I'll take you back to 1912 when they built Titanic. Titanic had two triple expansion engines, larger than this, but nevertheless two triple expansion engines, same basic design, on their wing propellers. Their centerline shaft had a Parsons cruising turbine. Point being that in 1912, the steam turbine had already been introduced and would very quickly prove itself to be the most efficient <coughs> way to propel a steamship. Turbines weren't available. As you can appreciate, it took a rather sophisticated machine shop and manufacturing effort to build them. They weren't available for the, for the merchant ships. They got the reciprocating steam engines. I can tell you they are a pleasure to work on. They are fascinating to watch them in motion. And they're a durable engine. And the one on John W. Brown continues to run. OK, we've got the ships. Now, just as <coughs> Cyril Thompson found out when he was trying to build ships here, there were no shipyard space available for building the merchant ships. So the Maritime Commission had to build the shipyards, just the same way Thompson did. Um, they would eventually build 18 shipyards on all three coasts, Atlantic, Pacific, and Gulf, to build Liberty ships. This is a picture of the Bethlehem Fairfield Yard, where John W. Brown was built. Bethlehem Fairfield Yard being in the area right where the toll booth to the harbor tunnel is now, up in, uh, up in Baltimore. They started out with 13 building ways. They ended up uh, at the end of the war with 16 building ways. They built a lot of Liberty ships as well as uh, some other ships. So if you're starting up a shipyard, <coughs> manpower becomes, and, and manpower is the wrong word now. We got to use female power or just labor power. Men were in short supply. They recruited a number of uh, women. By the end of the war, the number of women in the shipyard workforce was over 15%. So they did, as you can see, being trained on electrical circuitry here, they did a, a lot of welding. They, uh, they were very good welders. Picture of Bethlehem Fairfield workers uh, as they uh, finished the fitting out of their 10th ship. 
This is Bethlehem Fairfield's wartime record. Local shipyard, 384 Liberty ships over four years. Do the math. That's a lot of Liberty ships. The number should say 94 on the Victories. Victory was the follow-on design to the uh, Liberty ship. Had a finer underwater hull lines, and by that time steam turbines were available, so the Victories were fitted with either a 6,000 horsepower or an 8,500 horsepower steam turbine. And when I had the picture of the reciprocating engine up there, I did not mention, and I will now, it developed a whopping 2,500 horsepower. <laughs> Not very much for an engine trying to push 16,000, 14,000 tons of displacement through the water. So Bethlehem Fairfield had uh, quite a production record uh, during the war. And they approached production in, almost in an assembly line manner, um, which allowed them to retrieve some significant uh, efficiencies. Uh, one of the big changes is that these ships were almost all welded. Uh, Bethlehem Fairfield did some riveting as well as welding, but most of the shipyards, the Liberty ships were all welded. Prior to that time, only a handful of ships had been welded. They were, shipbuilders had stuck with riveting up through the, the interwar years. So there were a lot of reservations about welding and use of welding on uh, ships. Second thing, there was a great deal of prefabrication done. In the, in the background here are double bottom tanks. These are these tanks that go on the bottom of a merchant ship. They're about three and a half feet high, and you can see they're assembled and stacked three high behind the uh, female welder here who is building uh, more. So a great deal of prefabrication was done. The other thing, when you think about it, here's Bethlehem Fairfield, a brand new yard set up so it could be built to facilitate just the particular type they were shipping, uh, they were building, and the workforce had to be trained in a single ship. Or if you're an electrician, you were doing electrical circuits on only a Liberty ship. You didn't have to learn any other ships. And every time you went to work, you were gonna be working on the same kind of platform. And there was some efficiency to be gained there. The other thing <coughs> that contributed to this is that on the Liberty ship program, there were no significant design changes. As we watch Navy construction, we will watch classes of ships be built and then technology advances and there are changes which we want to backfit so we have flights one, flight two, flight three, as there are slight changes in these ships. That didn't happen in the Liberty ships. They were all the same design. No design changes. Prefabrication. Shows a bow section being uh, put on the, uh, made it to the rest of the ship on the, uh, on the building ways. The size of the prefabricated portions were limited only by the size of the crane that was available at the building way. So on these shipyards, building Liberty ships, they had a large assembly area where they did a lot of prefabrication and large pieces of ship, uh, large pieces of ship came to the building ways to be assembled. This is a section of the midship's house of a Liberty ship. It's about one-third of the full midship's house. And it's complete. The doors are in, the port lights are in. You can see bulkhead-mounted fans. The uh, 
Lifeboat davits are on the side, the railings are on the top, it's, it's painted. Where the electrical wiring has to be mated to the adjacent section, when that comes along, the wire is coiled up, ready to be, ready to be run. So the free fabrication, when it was delivered to the building ways, was essentially complete. It did not even need painting. This is Patrick Henry, the first Liberty ship uh, launched. It was launched on the 27th of September, 1941, at the Bethlehem Fairfield Yard. So the number one uh, Liberty ship goes in the water about 10 weeks before the United States is, uh, is in World War II. Uh, that day, the 27th of September, 1941, was proclaimed as Liberty Fleet Day by President Roosevelt. And on that day, around the country, 14 commercial ships were launched at different shipyards, including the first three liberties from three different shipyards. Less than a year later, Annie Green applies the champagne to the stem of John W. Brown, and John W. Brown goes down the ways September 7th, 1942, at the Bethlehem Fairfield Yard. Bethlehem Fairfield launched three Liberty ships that day. And it was Labor Day, so the launching ceremonies included a significant portion of tribute to the labor unions, because the shipbuilding industry obviously wanted the labor unions to support this shipbuilding effort to the best of their ability and minimize the, the chance for strikes during the, uh, during the building. John W. Brown uh, is named for a labor executive who had died the uh, previous year. It's not the abolitionist. Interesting sidelight on this, that uh, the week prior to launch, that hull was named Ralph Izzard. <laughs> for those of you from, I think, South Carolina, you'll remember that Ralph was a revolutionary era congressman, but he had nothing to do with the labor movement. So the name was changed to John W. Brown just prior to launch. <laughs> Ralph Izzard's name went on a ship out of Bethlehem Fairfield that went down the ways about uh, two weeks after, uh, after John W. Brown. Once a ship was launched, <coughs> it goes to, the, uh, goes to the fitting out pier to have the, uh, the remaining work done. I think it's obvious you want to clear the building way as quickly as you can and get the next keel laid. So again, nine Liberty ships, all carbon copies identified just by the number on the hull. One uh, digression here is that seven of those nine are Liberty tankers. I said the Liberty ships were, were all the same. There was an effort to minimize the, uh, I don't want to say minimize the threat to the tankers, but to disguise petroleum-carrying ships. Uh, if you're looking through a periscope or a bomb site, it's pretty obvious when you see the profile of a tanker. And petroleum products were high-priority targets for both the United States and our enemies during the war. So the uh, building program took, uh, I think, a total of 36 liberties. And instead of five cargo hatches, they had 10 oil tanks. But they still put the cargo gear on, even though they would not carry cargo. So when you're looking at the silhouette of this ship carrying petroleum products, it looks like a cargo ship, and then perhaps it is a less valuable target than if you can find a, a tanker silhouette. This is a uh, graph out of uh, Frederick Lane's book, uh, Ships for Victory, and it shows the average construction time of Liberty ships uh, 
during the war. Uh, time on the uh, axis here and then by months along the, uh, the bottom. You can see that early 1942 <coughs> takes about eight months to build a Liberty ship. This is the first ship being produced by these yards. And remember also that the yards are still being built while they're building the ships. So they didn't have a very efficient building place. But look how long it took to get down to something just over 50 days. In a year's time, they're down to just over 50 days. Oh, and for those of the, the light shading indicates days on the building ways, and on the top, the darker shading indicates days in the uh, days at a fitting out pier. You look at the peak of, pr of production for Liberty ships in the latter part of 1943. 40 days, keel laying to delivery. It's about 500,000 labor hours. About one and three quarters million dollars in then year dollars. And so you look at this graph and say, well, what happens after 43 when you're doing so well? Shipyards got asked to build other kinds of ships, so they were no longer building just Liberty ships. You were adding the Victory ships, you were adding the LSTs, you were adding a variety of, of other things. So the, uh, the efficiency uh, decreased a little bit. This shows the uh, manpower in the Maritime Commission shipyards. Remember, these are the 18 shipyards that started out building uh, Liberty ships. They were put together early in 19, uh, started being put together early in 1941, built up quickly and ramped down just as quickly at the end of the war. None of the Maritime Commission shipyards lasted into uh, commercial business very long after the war. The record production time for a Liberty ship during World War II was launch in four days and 15 hours after keel laying, three days to fit it out, total building time seven and a half days. This is Robert E. Perry launched by Kaiser's, Henry J. Kaiser's Richmond, California yard. Not a sustainable rate of production. <laughs> <laughs> but what a propaganda feat, both for Americans on the home front and for the enemy to digest on how fast we could build ships. Think about that, particularly you younger people in camouflage outfits today. No cell phones, no computers. That's, that's phenomenal to me. Merchant mariners on, uh, during the war, and, and still, sign on for a voyage at a time. They don't have a lot of loyalty to a ship. So at the beginning of the voyage, the shipping commissioner comes down, the crew signs articles, which is essentially a contract, which says, I'm going to sail this ship for this voyage. During the uh, war years, voyages were not well defined because you never knew where the, the ship was going to end up. But consequently, there was not a great deal of loyalty and a not a lot of effort on the part of crew members to maintain a ship. This is a picture of John W. Brown after voyage number three, and you can see that she has been uh, run hard and not getting a lot of maintenance. 229 liberties were lost during the war. There was a total of almost 800 American flag merchant ships lost during the war, but 229 liberties, all causes. Most of those were uh, lost due to uh, combat action, most of them due to submarines, and most of them in the Atlantic. This is the Liberty ship Charles Morgan. The location is off Utah Beach. 
the 10th of June, 1944. Again, not a dramatic photo of a, of a ship sinking, but I like it because it has been sunk because it was bombed by a German aircraft who bombed the after portion of it. After two cargo holds in the shaft alley flooded, the ship is resting on the bottom, but the flag is flying, the engineering plant is operating by the smoke, cargo gear forward is working the cargo in the undamaged forward portion of the, uh, of the ship. Merchant ships were defensively armed during World War II. They traveled in convoys. Uh, this is Bedford Basin in uh, Halifax Harbor. At the beginning of the war, the fast transatlantic convoys, fast being eight knots now, uh, assembled in, in Halifax. Later on, that would uh, move to New York, but this is ships assembling in Bedford Basin to uh, make up the next uh, convoy. This is a uh, convoy. Uh, we learned very quickly that the best way to get a uh, convoy past a submarine barrier was to have a very broad front, very few ships in each column. Consequently, most of your Atlantic convoys would have anywhere from 11 to 15 columns and maybe only five or six ships per column. You can see the destroyer out in the front is uh, one of the escort vessels, and this must be in 43 or 44 because it also has a, an air escort uh, to it. Uh, a poor picture for which I apologize, but what it tries to show is that during convoys, Liberty ships traveled with their lifeboats rigged out. Normal stowage position, the lifeboats were, were inboard of the uh, side of the hull. But when they went on a convoy, they would rig them out, so all they had to do was lower them. The cranking out of the davits would already be done. When the interior of the ship was filled, <coughs> Cargo was, was put on deck. Again, it doesn't show up very well here, but there's cargo on top of every hatch. And once they do that, they have so much deck cargo, they have to build a wooden catwalk to get from the midship accommodation to the bow so that the gunner's mates can get up to the bow to man the armament. One of the other <coughs> ways that a few Liberty ships were uh, lost was in the formation of the gooseberries off the Normandy invasion beaches. These were the artificial breakwaters. And so if a ship, including Liberty ships, had been damaged during the war so that it was probably not worth fixing, they were towed or in some cases steamed on their own power to Normandy <laughs> while the beachhead was still being contested and they were sunk in a line to form an artificial Breakwater. So there were seven Liberty ships, that, uh, in, including the one in the foreground, that were uh, part of the breakwater. I was speaking to somebody here about Jeremiah O'Brien. Of the 2,710 Liberty ships that were built during the war, two remain operational, John W. Brown in Baltimore and Jeremiah O'Brien in San Francisco. Both are operated as historic ships. So you say, what are the odds those two ships are ever going to see each other? August of 1944, the two ships pass at sea, about 10 miles north of the Cape Cod Canal. John W. Brown's northbound for a port visit in Halifax. Jeremiah O'Brien has just been to the 50th anniversary of the Normandy landings, has gone to South Portland where she was built, and is now on the way, uh, on the way home. 
the two ships meet. And, and back to your point, what are the odds that there's a Canadian Coast Guard cutter right where I'm standing and a deck seaman <laughs> was the equivalent of a, what I would call a brownie box camera at the time, who grabbed that, who grabbed that picture? So we have, uh, we have recorded it. Uh, both of these ships operate as historic ships. Uh, both are living memorials to merchant mariners, the Naval Arm Guard, and the shipyard workers that uh, have largely gone unheralded, but did, uh, I, I think, a phenomenal job in, in helping meet the, uh, the war needs of the, of the nation and, and the allies. Uh, just quick sidelight on, uh, since many of you have Navy background, the uh, Navy took delivery of over 140 Liberty ships during the war and operated them. So they were commissioned into the U.S. Navy. They were manned by a, a Navy crew and in most cases had a, had a new name. Liberty ships were named for famous uh, personages. Um, but generally, they were attack cargo ships, straight cargo ships, net carriers. A lot of them were um, repair ships. The last Liberty ship in the United States Navy was USS Tutuwila, stricken in 1971, was an internal combustion engine repair ship that serviced the amphibious force when I was in it, later serviced the mine force, and finished her years in Vietnam servicing the engines in the, in the Brown Water Navy. John W. Brown's in Baltimore, still sailing. Ladies and gentlemen, I thank you for the opportunity. I thank you for your attention. And if there is time, I will be happy to answer any questions. Well, yes, sir. The, uh, the, the large-scale prefabrication, most of that was done in the, I, I can't speak to the Navy construction, but most of that was done uh, in the Maritime Commission shipyards during the war, and it started when they were building Liberty ships, and, and again, you're having a, a, a single design. So most of it, most of it started then. Yes, sir. What happens with most of these ships after the war? Do they continue? Do they get scrapped? Do they continue uh, carrying on uh, economic trade? Uh, what? Uh, 1946, um, the uh, Ship Sales Act was enacted, and that provided for the disposition of the surplus cargo ships. Obviously, at that time, we were the largest merchant marine in the world. We had almost 2,500 Liberty ships alone that survived the war, war plus a number of uh, victory ships and other classes of ships. Um, but that Ship Sales Act uh, arranged for the sale of ships to U.S. shipping companies who had lost ships during the war uh, to our allies. Uh, the Greek Merchant Marine got 98 Liberty ships in, in one, one block purchase. And when you look at the names of the Greek ship owners, you see names like Kulakundis and Nyarkos and uh, Onassis, people who sort of made good after the war, but uh, a, a number of them were, were just scrapped. Uh, Patrick Henry was scrapped here in, uh, in Baltimore, and uh, a number of them were sunk as artificial reefs. John W. Brown 
was loaned to the Board of Education, City of New York, and became a floating vocational high school for 35 years where high school students trundled down, went up the gangway, and learned the maritime trades as a vocational high school education. Answer your question? Yes, sir. Thank you. How successful was the oil tanker camouflage? You know, I, I think pretty good because the uh, almost all of them survived the war, and I haven't gone back to see if the ones that were lost were lost due to hostile action or whether it was grounding or collision or, or something else. I'm sorry, I don't have a no, I don't have a good answer for that question. Well, my question, my first question today was going to be, did they build any tankers? And you answered that. <laughs> yes, sir. Why did they transition the victory ship? You had a nice platform. Did you crank out? Um, I, part of it was the speed. And because of the submarine threat in the Atlantic, convoy speed was relatively slow. And there were a lot of ships left over from having been built in World War I that could only go that fast. But when you got to the Pacific, the logistics became more difficult and the distances were, were, were greater. It would take a Liberty ship you know, a month and a half to get across the Pacific. And so the, uh, the victory ship was, uh, yeah, the victory ship was the answer. And the Navy took a lot of victory ships uh, with the 8,500 horsepower plants and made them attack APA, attack personnel, attack, tra attack transports. So because of the speed, they could, they could keep up with the, with the Navy units. But they built, I think, 500 and something uh, victory ships, nowhere near as many as Liberty ships. But it was primarily because of the distances in the, in the Pacific and then the availability of, of steam turbines by 1943. Yes, sir, on the end. Um, some of them were converted for troop transport, is that correct? And how did that work? That is correct. Uh, John W. Brown being, being one of them. And what they came up with was uh, a concept that they called the limited capacity troop transport. And they would, uh, they would take the forward tween deck they would take this area here and they would convert it to carry 500 troops. So they put in 500 canvas bottom bunks, they would put in a troop galley, a troop surgery, troop officers quarters. And the idea was that you could uh, take an entire military unit or a couple of companies worth of unit with all their logistics and all their equipment and you could take them from A to B and they, everybody arrived at the same time. John W. Brown did a lot of that on the second and third voyages where the ship would get to the Mediterranean and just shuttle between ports. On those two wartime voyages, John W. Brown stopped at 18 ports on each of those crews. So they got to the Mediterranean and they were shuttling fresh troops and fresh units forward as the front advanced. They were bringing prisoners of war and tired troops back. Thank you. Yes, sir. When and how did your organization acquire the job? Uh, John W. Brown's in, in, in New York um, in, uh, as a vocational high school in the, uh, in the 70s. Uh, there were some people who thought it would be a nice idea to preserve a Liberty ship and continue it, to operating, continue it operating. This was a logical choice because these students going to school on this ship who were learning machinery repair and valve repair are the initial ship restoration people. They are maintaining the ship. They're firing the boilers. They're operating lifeboats. They're as part of their education. 
So they, uh, they did a hull survey, and the, and the hull looked pretty good. Uh, the fact that it was modified as a troop ship, a limited capacity troop ship, had some real advantages for a museum ship. And so they formed an organization to, uh, to try to get the ship when the Board of Education was, was done with it. Board of Education gave it up in 1982. It went to the James River Reserve Fleet and was neglected for about five years. And the problem that these, the organization had, the nonprofit organization had, was they could not find a pier where they could berth the ship. They couldn't find it. They looked in New York. They couldn't find it there. And in 1988, the state of Baltimore made a pier available in Baltimore. So the ship was. Uh, we acquired title to the ship. We actually have title to it. It's not on loan. We're responsible for every facet of its operation. Uh, we got title to the ship. We towed it up to Baltimore, and as I say, it took three years to get it, get it running. Uh, yes, sir, Ken. Are there any recorded instances of victories uh, using the armaments on the um, there are a number of uh, cases where the defensive armament on a Liberty ship had, had, had shot down planes. There is one uh, significant incident where a Liberty ship uh, battled and sunk a German raider in the South Atlantic. This is Stephen Hopkins was a Liberty ship. The German raider was Steer sailing with Tannenfels as a, as a supply ship. And uh, while the Stephen Hopkins was sunk, it also sunk the steer. So there's a couple of examples where the armament and the gunners on a, on a Liberty ship either shot down aircraft or in this one case uh, sunk a German, German warship. That's the only case I know of where a Liberty ship sunk another ship with gunfire. Yes, sir. Um, my father was on one of these in the Pacific, and I was looking through his daily logbook. It's fascinating, but he said they fired the five-inch gun one time, and it started a bunch of welds back aft, and he said they, they decided they weren't going to fire them. <laughs> <laughs> he said the torque from that was really damaging. <laughs> but they had poured the bilge of his electronic supply ship, and they poured it, he said, five feet deep in concrete to weight it down because of light cargo. And he said it had a, a terrible motion, you know, being so heavy in the keel. And, uh, John W. Brown is very stiff. We, we carry ballast water and we carry iron ingots as, as, as ballast. And we are somewhat the same way because we don't have very much fuel at all and we have, we have no cargo. So, and we still have, we have that, uh, it's a rather stiff ship and it, it rolls. He said he'd have to, the engines would stop in storms because the prop would come out. So that sometimes in storms they lost their engines. How many engineers in here? Oh my gosh. The Liberty ships were fitted with a butterfly valve for, for just this, this problem. When your stern was coming out of the water, when you could feel the stern start to rise, and you thought that the engine was going to run away because there was no resistance on the propeller, there was a lever there that you could pick up and it would restrict this flow of steam. Not shut it, restrict it going to the engine, which would slow the engine down. And I have seen that used on John W. Brown when we were in a seaway off of, uh, off of Nova Scotia. Yeah. It is a, 
<laughs> manpower intensive and it wears you out in a hurry. It, 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 it is hard. Yes, sir. How many crossings did the Brown make? Made 13 voyages during and immediately after the uh, war. And I think the first six were made when we were still at war in, in Europe. And the voyages after that were, uh, were made in peacetime. She made four voyages, five voyages, to northern Europe and to the Mediterranean carrying uh, bolt cargoes after the war to rebuild Europe, carrying grain and, and coal. So there was, I, I want to say six during the war, and the war in Europe ended during one of her voyages to Europe. So that would be the normal life of the Liberty, that many voyages? Um, yeah, I think so. I, I mean, if it lasted that long, I mean, a number of them were sunk on their maiden voyage, but uh, if, if it survived the war, that would probably be a, a reasonable number of voyages to uh, have made. Yes, sir. This kind of goes with the captain's uh, question earlier, but were there any like really famous or infamous incidents regarding the ships in World War II besides the sinking of the Merchant Marine? Uh, whatever, any like famous incidents? Well, I, I think the most famous one, uh, at least if you're a, a Merchant Mariner, was the Stephen Hopkins uh, case. Um, I don't think there were many that I would call um, heroic actions. There were a lot of unfortunate accidents where, where ships were, were destroyed or were uh, lost. But uh, no, I don't, I don't think so other than the uh, Stephen Hopkins. As one author said, they, <coughs> they didn't get much attention. They just went out there and did their job and, and carried the cargo. Yes, sir. You mentioned the bell bottom tanks before. What was the purpose of the bell bottom tanks? Oh, thank you very much. Um, they carried fuel there. That was their primary place for carrying fuel. And they were not suitable for carrying cargo because of the curvature of the, of the bilge and all the structure to uh, build strength into the ship. So normally, fuel was carried in those, those tanks. And you could carry 1,800 tons of, of fuel. So you could carry enough tons to go halfway, uh, enough fuel to go halfway around the world. Thank you for calling me on that one. I should have mentioned. Yes. Did shipbuilding continue at that time, Fairfield, after World War II? No, yeah, none of the none of the uh, Maritime Commission shipyards lasted. Uh, they, <coughs> after the war, we had a lot more ships than than we needed. So victories, um, because of their speed and their, and their propulsion, a lot of them were used in, in commercial service. A smaller number of, of liberties were used in, in commercial service, particularly um, outside the United States. But there were a couple of steamship companies, uh, Calmar that worked out of Baltimore and uh, Bull Lines out of New York operated liberties for, uh, for a few years. But once you got, uh, once a liberty ship was about 20 years old, the inspection requirements to remain in class. I'm talking about inspections by the American Bureau of Shipping so that they would certify a vessel as, as being in class and suitable for insurance. They just became so, so difficult, it was just not worth it for most people. Yes. Did many of the Liberty ships end up in the uh, ready reserve force? Yeah. <coughs> uh, they, they did. Um, 
There are some pictures of the Ready Reserve Fleet in the Hudson River up near Haverstraw, where you can see victories and liberties moored side by side. And a number of those ships were used to store surplus grain, I think, in the 1950s. So um, they were stored there. When we got John W. Brown out of the Reserve Fleet in 1988, there were three liberties down there. On one side was a liberty that had been operated by the Navy, USS Protector. And that was one of the 16 Liberty ships that were a maritime dewline ship. Any dewline ring a bell with anybody? Distant early warning line, the radar stations across Canada. 16 Liberty ships were outfitted with a big air search radar and just did slow ovals in the ocean looking for the airborne uh, threat. So there were, the answer to your question is, there, there were three Liberty ships down there um, and we were allowed to take parts from the uh, from the other two, we uh, took the rudder off Arthur and Hadell. Our volunteers removed the rudder while it was in the water, which was, which was a hell of a feat. Um, and then a Coast Guard cutter, we hung it off with chain falls and a Coast Guard cutter brought it up. John W. Brown's rudder was uh, so bad that uh, it couldn't be repaired. So we have the rudder from Hadell and we have parts from the other two, uh, other two Liberty ships. But yeah, they, they were in there for a while. Um, when they broke ships out of the reserve fleet uh, for Vietnam, uh, they broke out victories. I am not sure that they broke out any liberties, and my opinion is that they did not, but I could be mistaken on that. They broke out a lot of victories out of the reserve fleet. All right, well, our midshipmen are all anxiously looking at their watches because it is time for them to go to class. So uh, we'll get things up. Captain Schneider, thank you for an excellent class. Thank you.